My idea was to make the customer happy. It wasn't about selling clothes, which it might sound stupid, but in my head it wasn't about selling clothes. It was making people feel good and look good. And comfort was pretty well number one high on the list. I am Susie Menkes, and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. She is known to the fashion world as Mrs. B, Joan Burstein, whose legendary shoppers were not only stars, but also so many more. Together with her late husband, Sidney, they owned Boutique Browns. Founded in the 1970s, Browns rapidly became an influential fashion destination. The store was founded on South Moulton Street, a pedestrian area just a hop and a skip from London's Mayfair, near Claridge's and near Vogue House. It was always stocked with designers' purchase from Paris, Milan and New York and Japan. The store became the epicentre for women who wanted to look in vogue. It was filled with all the latest in styles and trends where all the movers and shakers of the fashion world gathered. Credited for bringing Giorgio Armani, Ralph Lauren and Calvin Klein and Izzy Miyake to the forefront of the fashion scene, Mrs B sits down with me to explain her Midas touch. So I'm so pleased to see you and now you're in London and um, I've come over for a nice cup of tea and looking out of your window which um, is beginning to look a little bit as though winter's on the way but you are off now aren't you you're seeing me before you go off to Ibiza one of your favorite places and um, so by the time people are hearing what you're saying you're going to be out there in the sun with your family sounds good couldn't be better I'm the luckiest woman Alive, I think, or one of the luckiest women, really. So I want to start this conversation, Mrs. B, by asking you why. Why in your name is Joan Burstein? Why are you suddenly, and have been for so many years, Mrs. B? What's the story? Well, when we took over, when Sydney and I took over Browns, he was Mr. B and I was Mrs. B. But when we had feathers, he was Mr. Sydney and I was Mrs. Sydney. So that's how it all occurred. And does Browns, you really gave it its importance, which is still there today. Um, how did that start? It didn't start with your name, did it? No, no. Sir William Piggott Brown had Browns as a little shop, and, but it was a very chic little shop that um, my son Simon discovered because... He was walking around the West End one day and he discovered the shop and they had a Renoma suit in the window, which he came back and told me, 
that shop has got a, I think they pronounce Renomar, a suit, and he desperately wanted it. So he said, you know, Mummy, it looks a very interesting shop. Would you come with me and I'll see if I can get a job there? So I said, well, I'll come with you, but I won't go inside with you. If you want to get a job, you've got to do it yourself. Whereupon he went in and he chatted with somebody and he came out and he said, I've got it, I'm a Saturday boy. And it became such a destination. Um, yeah. It's still even a destination today. How does it feel looking back? Do you remember the excitement of the early days? Oh, I do. I do, really. I almost remember it physically even, you know, the excitement. And the pleasure, the absolute pleasure I got from going in daily and being there, meeting people, seeing them. Customers were like friends. They really were. And um, my staff were equally wonderful. And my, my idea was to make the customer happy. It wasn't about selling clothes, which it might sound stupid, but in my head it wasn't about selling clothes. It was making people feel good and look good and comfort was pretty well number one high on the list. But I mean, a lot of these people also, I remember it, um, they were the movers and shakers of the fashion scene. I'm sure there were some people who I didn't know or recognise, but there were a good few that were famous already. Did you feel that? Did you feel you were becoming famous by no. dressing these people? No, I, I didn't think like that at all. Might sound strange, but I never have. I, it didn't mean that to me. It was just making my customers look good and feel good and be happy. Talk to me a little bit about the vibe in South Milton Street. Yes, there was a vibe. It was all happening in that street. You know, as you said, there was Butler Wilson there, a Vidal Sassoon was there. Opposite we had a, a nursing agency, so that was another sort of person. Then we had the pub next door. And then, dare I say, that you had um, Princess Diana popping by to get jewellery, is that right? Not at Brown's, I'm afraid. I can't say that. The Duchess of York was a customer. She was a lovely lady. I'm sure she's still a lovely lady. But she used to come in and she used to love looking at the clothes. And uh, Lucian Freud's, whether it was his, I think it was one of his, it was his mistress, she used to come in. And she was always very frail, but she used to love looking at Sonia Riquel and admiring everything. And she just had a good, a good knowledge of textures. And that was really wonderful. You've um, always had an eye for what's going to be a hit, for who's going to be famous in the fashion world. You probably could still do it today. But I have a favourite story, and it's you told it to me, that you went to New York Studio 54 in the 1980s, and you wanted to sidle through the wild dancers and approach a rising star that you were convinced about, who was called Calvin Klein. Is it true, in the blink of an eye and of dance movement, did you succeed in getting the designer that everybody was searching for? It's absolutely true. It was magical in Studio 54, and you could do just whatever you felt like doing. And I saw him and I thought, right, this is a wonderful opportunity. And I'm going over and I'm going to introduce myself to him and tell him that I've opened a shop for Ralph Lauren. I'd love to open a shop for him. And do you know what his reply was? Oh my, I would love it, but I'm not as famous as Ralph Lauren. Ah, those were the days. Wasn't, wasn't it? Well, yes, they were the days. And you know, it's so nice. I saw him 
I think it must have been six months ago in Claridge's, and um, I went over to him because I thought he wouldn't recognise me, and of course he did. You know, he was very affectionate and lovely. We didn't talk about bygone days, but we could have done. Well, it's a long time since he really left, effectively, the fashion world, um, having led it for so long. But tell me about how Browns grew, because a lot of people will only remember it in the days when the one-story shop had turned into, I think it's five, wasn't it, that you had? It did, yes, yes, we had. Twenty, yes, five. And there was 27, your... 26, 25, 24, 23, and 23 became the man shop. And um, Caroline, your daughter, started Brown's Focus, wasn't it? Called? Yes, I got the right name. yes, that's right. And um, it was in order to have an area that focused on the new and young talent. Exactly. And focus on young people to get another client in, because, you know, we were established, and we had an established clientele, and we wanted something that was a little bit daring and... That's how Brown's focus originated. And I, Caroline ran that, and it was, and most successfully. I would say that it was pretty daring, a lot of the things you did, and none more so than John Galliano. He was completely unknown. He was just a student I know. when you leapt upon him. And um, really, you were the first person to stop Galliano. You, you saw him as a graduate from Central St. Martins in... 84, is that yeah, right, 1984? Yeah, yeah. I'm terrible with years, but I'm sure you're right. Well, I know in, in, in his incroyable collection. Yes. Oh, um, he was just so fantastic. that You could not realise that you had great talent that escaped conformity. I think that's how I could describe it. Although his you know, teachers had taught him, he escaped it all, did something wonderfully wild. I mean, his shirts were just amazing. It was all amazing. Will you give me a true answer for something I've always wondered? Did you sell the clothes or did people just come and look at them and say, oh, wonderful? Oh, my God, they came and grabbed them. And Linda McCartney was his first customer, as far as I'm concerned, and she bought his shirts. And not just one, I think she bought, I don't know how many. But, you know, we put them in the window and, and people wanted them. And that was a most wonderful experience. I feel that one of the things you brought was something that's very, very rare in the fashion world, even now, even 50, 60 years on, which is somebody who has got the eye and the vision and the understanding of fashion and also understands the money side. I mean, I know you were working with your husband, who's extremely efficient with all that, but you also, I know I remember back some of those days, you were interested in whether things sold or not. Oh, you weren't, you weren't <laughs> just fancying around produce glamorous things, go for pictures in magazines. No way, no way. <laughs> I was interested in the clothes. First of all, I had to love them personally. I had to like them. I couldn't sell anything that I didn't personally like. Not that I could wear everything, but I, that's how I felt about clothes. I had to love them and let everybody else love them. It was a wonderful time, it really was. Don't ask me about fashion today. We'll leave fashion today for the moment because I wanted to know a little bit more about fashion then. I remember, because I was one of the young, enthusiastic students in fashion then, and I remember how these names came in, the names that we'd never heard of. And these were people who were sold by you. There was Izzy Miyake, who of course I still love, even though he's now passed yeah. away. Romeo Gili, 
Mm. Yeah, well, he was wonderful, wasn't he? And then Miss Oni, you've just talked about, mm. um, Ralph Lauren also, uh, Donna Karen, Alaya, Comte Garçon, Jill Sander, oh. and also, and also, Giorgio Armani. You were the first retailer, retailer yeah. who actually embraced the whole idea of Giorgio Armani yeah. until he turned around and oh. left you. Yes. Wasn't very nice, was it? No mind. He did explain to me it wasn't it wasn't my partner that behaved badly towards you because I thought it was. He said, I'm afraid it was a man that was brought in from France. So I had that conversation with him many years ago afterwards at Nobu, the restaurant that he mm -hmm. opened in Milan. And I sat next to him and I didn't ask him and he turned round to me and said, I've got to tell you something, Joan. It wasn't Sergio, that was his partner at the time who had any animosity to you or, or, you know, cut you out. It was this awful man who they brought in over us, so I forgave him. Um, just tell me a little bit about Giorgio Armani, because, you know, he's never been one who people really fell for in the same way. Yes, mm -hmm. a lot of people simply loving the ease and the design of his clothes, starting with men as well, of course. Oh, that's when I first saw him. Simon took me to a man's collection. He was in Milan. I said, Mummy, come over. I think he was. He went to see the Messonis, that's right. He said, come over. This man, Giorgio Armani, has done a collection that I'm buying, but he's doing a women's collection as well. Come and see it. And that was stunning. Stunning. It was in... Everything was um, unlined, obviously, and it was in linens and bright colours. It was gorgeous and very simple. Big jackets, big long skirts. It was really very, very unusual. But he done the deconstructed, that's the word. They were deconstructed. Yes. yes. Tell me back then, although I was partly a part of it, what were women in London like in the way that they dressed? Did they want to take a total look from Armani or from another label? Did they want to... Um, sort of achieve an image by putting different pieces together? Were they artistic? No. I don't think I had anybody in who wanted to do their own thing, really. I can't remember a customer who wanted to do her own thing. Prior to that, those years, uh, Sonia Riquel used to do total looks, and they were very acceptable. There was the, the jacket, the trousers, and the sweater, and the hat, and that was all very acceptable. And you could mix and match them, that yes, was the idea, wasn't yes, it? Yes, you could do. But usually the total colours were what people went for. I remember I I had one in peach, I think, and one in another colour, all total. And I remember going into Claridge's and being told by the manager, um, Madam, I wish to tell you, you are the first person we've allowed into Claridge's wearing trousers. And it was a trouser suit by Sonia Rickyard. What a trial! They felt you were so elegant that they couldn't it not let so you in. It was so funny. I really, I was, I was in shock. I didn't realise, and I, you know, I'd live, I was up the road, and I would pop in there many times. I think he thought, "Who is that woman who's always wearing trousers?" <laughs> I suppose we'll have to allow her in. <laughs> Isn't it an extraordinary thing to think that that was what fifty years ago? No, that wasn't even 50 years ago, it was about 35 years ago. And, and, and even at 35 years ago, women were not supposed to wear trousers in no. a smart hotel? No. Oh no, my no. goodness. No. How life has changed. Yes, it hasn't. It?
that you helped, if that's the right word, designers. I'm thinking of people who are sort of less known, people like Walter Albini and Norma Kamali. Well, they never sadly got to the absolute height and with their names said by everybody, but you very much supported them. Oh, yes, I supported them because I believed in them. I mean, Walter Albini was a treasure of a man. He was a brilliant designer and uh, overlooked, really. Not in Italy, he was very much admired, but he wasn't known in the rest of the world, and he needed to be. He was a manswear designer, ostensibly, and a lovely man on top of it. By the way, anybody I did business with, they had to be nice. Otherwise, I didn't do business with them. My husband taught me that. And Norma Kamali was so unique. And when I went to New York and bought her, I mean, her duffel coats and her parachute dresses, they were so ahead of time. But something that has always struck me about you and what you do and what you have done is that you've always somehow catered to your clients' needs. You've never done, yes, you may have done a Norma Kamali outfit that is shocking or daring, but behind it, I know, not literally behind it, but in an, on another rail, there would be things that were broken up and were totally wearable and simple. That oh, You yes. had the ability to go in to all the designers and put the pieces out that were extraordinary and that people rushed to look at. But behind it, not necessarily behind even, beside it, were clothes that were perfectly normal for people to wear, more and more women working, and you seemed to take all that in. I think it was just part of my experience, you know. Remember, I'd been working for a long while before Browns <laughs> and had my ups and downs. So what is it all together? If you add it all up in your long life and your work in fashion, how many um, decades? Hmm. Five. <laughs> Only five? Well, five <laughs> tens of fifty. <laughs> I think a decade is ten. I'm terrible at maths. <laughs> I'm sure you're good enough to add up whether you had good sales or not. Oh, oh definitely. And you know what I did one season? I was, I was a bit mad, but I used to get a lot of young students who used to come and look in the windows. And they just, you know, then they'd come into the shop and they'd cautiously look around and be frightened to touch anything. And so I did, I think it was 24, I think it was a one day, I put on everything for sale at £25, and it was a madhouse. I think we said you can't take more than two or three, you know, we, we had to uh, control it. But, oh, it was wonderful. The young people came in and they bought, and it was, it was joyous, and that gave me pleasure. It really did give me pleasure, because I thought these youngsters, they, they were fashion students, most of them, obviously. Or even some of the girls from Vogue most probably would remember that. Uh, you also had um, clients, customers, who flew in, flew in especially. These were not the ones who were students with very little money to spend, but the opposite. Um, people who wanted to um, invest in their wardrobe in a major way. Um, did you feel that, that you had been picked out and that these no. were famous people? No, I didn't feel that. I know that Diane Ross used to come in, but I think she used to come and speak to my husband. <laughs> she was lovely. She gave him tickets to one of her shows. Because you know my husband, he used to love to talk to everybody. Yes, he was. Very... Do you know what he did once? We didn't give discounts, only to staff. And not even to friends and family. And one of the girls came, one of the assistants came over and she said, Mr B, you know, Mrs something over there, 
she really liked a discount. And uh, because she's been a regular customer. So he said, uh, let me talk to her. So he went over, he said, let me talk to her. He went over and he said, Mrs. I know you, I've heard you want a discount. Now, let me give you some advice. If you can't afford it, do not buy it. If you can afford it, you'll be stupid not to. <laughs> I take it that she immediately bought two. Or <laughs> no, four. I, I think she was a bit upset with him. <laughs> and I think she had to sit down. <laughs> but he was absolutely right. And I'd say that to everybody. And I tell my children, if you cannot afford it, don't even think about it. But if you can, you should buy it. So we've already talked about some of the stars that you lured um, to buy clothes. And um, I think there was somebody with the name of Madonna who would come by and um, be very enthusiastic. Is that right? Indeed. Absolutely right. Well, I think that you could be a little less discreet. <laughs> Tell us well, something. I, no, I didn't personally. If I did, I didn't recognise her. That's just like me, you know. I could easily not recognise somebody. But I don't know if she flew in especially. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm sure she did. Um, something which I feel was very important in what you did. You've talked a lot about your wonderful husband, sadly no longer with us. But um, it's very been very much a family business. And um, there's your son Simon. And um, obviously he married, although they're now separated, to Ricky L family. Do you think that there's still now that urge to bring families together for people who are interested in fashion and selling things? Is there a dynasty now in the way there used to be, or is that all over? Well, I think that is fading. Look, there is a Missoni dynasty, but there's new people being brought into design, so it's not as strong as it was. I really can't think of another. Tell me one, another dynasty. Can you think of one? Well, no, because they're all fading uh, as exactly. we speak. Mm. Um, and it's fairly recent, I think, almost, um, I would say, in over the last 10 years. I think it's because so many um, brands now are bought by the biggies, and so therefore the choice of designer is not a given. That's in true. other words, just because the company was owned by certain people, a certain family, it doesn't mean that now that they would necessarily go on. I think that's what it's about. Yeah, I think so too. Look at the Ferragamo family. They've decimated, haven't they? Yes, I think they all have, really. Anyone on a happier note, tell me about Brown's windows, because they really were something else, absolutely something to marvel about. You must have spent so much time planning the displays. I don't know if you did it yourself, or they were such a spectacle. Did you work with somebody particularly? Did the idea come from you? We always employed professional window dressers. Uh, we would give them, or I would give them, the designer I would want them to display, you know, that week or that half a week, and they would do it. I truly am not that creative, and uh, no, no, I'm not. Don't look as though I'm mad, I'm not. I know I'm not creative, and I'm a good buyer. And, uh, Even if you think you're not creative, can you not think of one idea you had to put in the windows of your store that everybody gasped about? Oh, well, John Galliano, of course, and, <laughs> and Norma Kamali, they gasped about, but then we gave her a shop. Yes, and Romeo Gili, and mm. we gave him a shop too. He was magical, wasn't he? He was so romantic, I think, 
That's what he was, romantic. And now he's... Yes, well, that's the sad story of many um, Isn't it? fashion now. And I don't know whether we don't just... I don't mean we personally, but people just make them deliver so often with eight shows a year. That and was then, too much. Yes, too much. Yes, I think so too. And not demanded by the retailer. Not at all. Of course, Brown's is still um, with us today, with um, Jose Neves and the um, CEO of founder of Farfetch. So that's, the dynasty is still continuing, but in a different way. Mm. Um, that deal, I think, was made with your son Simon, wasn't it? And he um, yes. organised it. Do you feel that for your family that it was the end of an era? No, I thought it was the beginning of a new life, to be honest. You know, because although Brown's was successful in everybody's eyes, it really didn't make any money. Anything we made went to the landlords. The same pattern that's forced so many people out of business now. Every, every, anything we had surplus, we didn't even really, weren't even to give that to our staff. It all had to go to the landlords, because here it's up every five years. Not like in France, where apparently I think your rent is related to your turnover, which is much fairer. You are in the lucky position of um, having family in, in Ibiza and you spend quite a lot of time going there. When the sun goes in here, you, you're out there. And um, do you think a lot about fashion today and its trends? Do you, uh, in Ibiza, do you sit on a terrace and look at the magazines and say, this reminds me of something? Or have you put it a little bit behind you? I think I've put it a little bit behind me, to tell you the truth. I really have. I don't think about fashion. Uh, there was one shop that I did like to uh, buy in in London and then it closed because they couldn't afford the rent. And it was a Japanese shop, uh, R45. They still have two in Paris and one in New York. And and it was next door to the Izumiaki shop in David Street. The um, story always was, and you can tell me if it's true, that... If you didn't want to wear it yourself, if you didn't understand the purpose of the clothes you were selling out. Oh, definitely. Definitely. What did you actually do? How did you do it? Did you secretly or openly take clothes home and try them on and say, no. yes, this makes me feel glamorous and so on? Or? No, I would try them on in the shop <laughs> before we opened or afterwards. No, but I knew. Something inside me knew. I don't ask me how I knew, but instinctively. I knew. In life, you've got to have luck, good health, number one. Luck and good friends. You've also got a good family. Do you think, there are quite a lot of them around now, do you think that any of the younger members of your family that's scattered around the world are going to come? Is there one that's going to come forward and be the new you? No. <laughs> no, no. I don't want them to be the new you. I want to be them, for them to be themselves and create their own individuality. I mean, one, I've got one granddaughter in Ibiza who's an organic gardener. But in a way it shows, it's very interesting because it shows how differently young people are looking at the world now. Absolutely. Where they would maybe go and buy crazy over the latest dress. Now yeah. it's thinking about the garden. Absolutely. You, you've done it properly. And then my other granddaughter, as you know, is very creative. 
Natasha, and she's a jeweller, and she's got her workshop in San Miguel and uh, in Ibiza, and her boutique there, and she does very well. She does commissions for people, and a lot of a lot of well-known people have found her and buy from her, which is lovely. So she's done her own thing. Then I've got another great-granddaughter who I think is very talented. I will show you one of her pieces that she's done, and you'll tell me. I'd love to see it. But I'm hoping she'd get into Slade School. I think so, because that's where Natasha started. She got into Slade, and she got a scholarship to New York and started there for a bit. Uh, if you've got talent, it'll come out. So and I haven't got that talent at all. You have a dynasty, and the only way a dynasty is ever built is from talent. So I think we can, I can argue with you and say, yeah. yes, you had talent, and I believe you still have it. If I had a march here in your drawing room of the six most exciting designers of the moment, I know that you would be looking at them and choosing them and feeling that feeling that you do get when something speaks out to you and says, that's it. I'd love it. Find them for me. Is that a challenge? Yes. (laughs) I'd love you to find me somebody that I will. Everything you wear always looks as though it belongs to you, not that it's a display of some designer you've discovered. What are you wearing at the moment? Uh, My top is Dries van Noten, an oldie, obviously. Have my very comfortable pants because they're elastic waist are by Eileen Fisher. Do you know Eileen Fisher? Yes, indeed. So this is your look of the day, but the thing you haven't mentioned is your granddaughter's jewellery. Ah, well done. To finish it all off. It does, doesn't it? Natasha Collis, who is based in Ibiza now, and the love of my life is her son, who is two years old, and he's the real attraction that's taken me to Ibiza. Yes, and the earrings are hers as well. Well, I'm needing to have another wonderful dress, the kind of thing you find in Ibiza. So keep your eyes open for your wonderful walk in the sun. I will. There is a wonderful shop in Ibiza. They have the fabrics printed in Philippines, I think it is. And it's all cotton. Mm. And it's vegetable dyed. And they're the simplest dresses and things you can possibly have for Ibiza. Or for any sunny country. I don't think you're leaving fashion behind you, but I hope you have a wonderful holiday. I thank you, Susie. Thank you so much. It's a joy to talk to you. It's a pleasure for me. Really, really a great pleasure. Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Jörg Zuber, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels.